What's the time? It's time to get ill. What's the time? It's time to get ill. So what's the time? It's time to get ill. Now what's the time? It's time to get ill. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, this is episode like 83 or 84 or something like that of the podcast. I never remember which episode number it is. Uh, so basically, so we're not a new podcast anymore. Uh, but for those of you tuning in for the first time, uh, you know, people listening for the first time, just uh, go ahead and explain what we try to do here, which is basically that uh, I invite an author on to discuss uh, a book of theirs that's been newly published or recently published, uh, something uh, we think you guys out there would like to hear a conversation about. And then hopefully at the end of the podcast, or even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, you go ahead and uh, uh, purchase a copy of the book and uh, give it a read for yourself. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show. And also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Mr. Jonathan Butcher. And Jonathan Butcher is the Will Skillman Fellow in Education at the Heritage Foundation. And he previously served as the education director at the Goldwater Institute, where he remains a senior fellow and is also a senior fellow at the Beacon Center of Tennessee and a contributing scholar for the Georgia Center for Opportunity. Uh, he is the co-editor and co-author of the Critical, the Critical Classroom, How Critical Race Theory Undermines Academic Excellence and Individual Agency in Education, and The Not-So-Great Society. And his work has appeared in uh, the Wall Street Journal, Education Week, uh, Newsweek, National Review, Forbes, uh, among many others. And lastly, he is the author of Splintered, Critical Race Theory and the Progressive War on Truth, which was uh, published back in April by Bombardier Books, and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Jonathan, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, no problem. So, um, first question is something I normally ask everybody. What, uh, what, what made you want to... What made you want to write this book? What was the uh, what was the genesis of it? Did it come out of the uh, uh, the critical classroom that uh, uh, that book you Heritage put together? Uh, was it last year or two years ago, something like that? Um, did it have anything to do with that, or was it already in the works then? Uh, yeah. So uh, what uh, what was the genesis of this book? Well, so the critical classroom came out around the same time that Splintered was released. Oh, did it? I thought it came it out was... like a year ago for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it, the critical classroom was a collection. Yeah, yeah. It's a volume, right? And uh, and uh, the the idea behind Splintered. So the reason that I wanted to write Splintered was because we were talking, even at the at the very leading edge of the pandemic, the very beginning, uh, there was a lot of discussion about the 1619 project from the New York mm-hmm. Times, this question of American history, and really what what is the truth about it. How is it being interpreted and what does it mean for civics education in K-12 schools? And as I started to look into civics education, uh, it, you know, you these days you cannot avoid talking about the 1619 project. And, you know, folks like Ibram Kendi's work on uh, through his book Stamped Mm. and how to be an anti-racist and then Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility. And and (laughs) what are these things saying about civics and Mm -hmm. and a sense of national identity and uh i'll say this i think what really what really lit a spark as i was reading um particularly some of the things that were in ibram kendi's book 
uh, he made some claims about America's sense of national identity and some of the leading, some of the ideas that inspired the civil rights movement that I thought needed to be answered. Uh, I felt like uh, there are some things that, that are being said today that may sound sort of um, ambiguous or might sound like they're just being couched in a, in a beneficial way about race in the U.S., but really are not, but are, mm-hmm. are really actually quite harmful. Yeah. Um, so I guess we should start by, <laughs> because this is the debate that seems to be everywhere. Uh, what exactly is uh, critical theory critical race theory and what isn't critical race theory yeah an, an excellent question because you know if you look at cnn or if mm-hmm. you read npr or, you know the mainstream media they'll say well look critical race theory it's just a perspective on american life that's sort of rooted in a legal theory from the 1970s that views america and its institutions as uh, having forms of systemic racism that are a part of it. Now, if you just hear that, you think, well, reasonably reasonable people can agree on what, you know, critical race theory is and it's yes, we see incidents of racism in in the public today, so surely there's something else going on here. But that misses what critical theory and critical race theory is almost entirely, almost entirely, right? Critical race theory is a line of thinking that came out of a movement called the critical legal theory movement. Critical race theorists said that both conservatives, but especially liberals during the civil rights movement, were not radical enough. They were not radical enough. And it's because they stayed within the confines of American law. Right. The debate during the civil rights movement, the debate even during the critical legal theorists as they were looking at American law was saying, how can we work within our constitutional structure, work within American law to create things such as the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which was you know, ultimately one of the, the great things that that came out of and even a part of the civil rights movement. Critical legal theorists said, no, no. Colorblindness is a fiction. American law was established by white individuals with power to preserve their power. They even have a name for that called interest convergence, which means that the interests of white individuals converged with the interests of black individuals. And so because white people were in power, they allowed for some level of civil rights, but only to the point that it didn't challenge uh, the power of white individuals. It is a radical theory. It is a radical theory. And um, it's, we can talk about its roots in Marxism sure. um, as well. But I would just say that, that, that the CNN and the mainstream media, they're making this out to feel like, well, reasonable people can sort of look at critical race theory and, and kind of agree with what it's trying to do. And I would say, no, no, you're missing it. You're missing what the founders of the theory said themselves. Mm-hmm. And all, all that I just relayed to you, the founders of critical race theory wrote those things. They are skeptical of the rule of law. They're skeptical of the Enlightenment. They don't believe that American law is either fair or worth preserving. Yeah, and the the critical theorists, um, or the, the original set of critical theorists, they're they're postmodernists. So uh, they believe that there is no authentic truth uh, or objective truth or objective fact. That there's just a subjective observation and experience and as you said sort of the the marxist um uh 
origins of critical theory. Uh, it, it literally came out of the, uh, the Marxist uh, Frankfurt School um, in between the wars. And uh, so, uh, yeah, talk a little bit about the, uh, the, the uh, origins of uh, critical theory. If you could. Sure. Yeah, Yeah, because these these roots are very important. Mm -hmm. Right. Critical. That word critical has a very specific meaning. Right. Leading up to um, the kind of widespread understanding of what Marxism was before it was just traditional theory. Right. It was this idea that man can improve himself through advances in science and technology and, you know, coming out of um, uh, especially the the enlightenment ideas and the ideas from uh, the founding of the United States and, and this concept that man could rule himself with a representative system. You know, these were, we could call them now, we would call them traditional theory. Mm-hmm. Well, critical theory is just that. It is critical of the traditional theory that came before it that had certainly Judeo-Christian roots, right? But uh, it was most certainly Marxist. So you had a group of intellectuals in Germany, largely Jewish uh, who believed that Marxism needed to be rejuvenated because the German working class had failed to overthrow the existing structure in the same way that the, had happened in Russia with the Bolshevik Re- Revolution. So they held what was known as the first Marxist work week in uh, the 1920s. Uh, they established the Frankfurt School, as you called it, which, you know, it's because it was an institute at you know the University of Frankfurt there in Germany, uh, to, again, uh, have a renewed understanding of what Marxism was going to mean for the rest of the 20th century. They were chased out of Germany uh, by the Nazis. Uh, they landed at Columbia in uh, 1937, and that is where they began to uh, develop this concept of not just a power struggle over economic classes, which of course is is very uh, traditionally Marxian, right? But also that it applies to culture. Right. There are power struggles in culture uh, Mm. that are always with us. And that is how culture should be defined is uh, there is one group. These different groups will have power and they will be engaged in a in a constant struggle over who will uh, rise up to be the most powerful critical legal theorists. Right. Took these ideas as they matured in the academy and in particularly coming out of the 1970s. Uh, they said things such as so Duncan Kennedy, one of the original critical legal theorists, said, if you take these critical ideas and you apply them to American law, this means that American law needs to be taken apart, either all at once or piece by piece. Mm-hmm. Right. They didn't want to play within the bounds uh, of American law anymore. And they believed that these power structures were what defined uh, American law. The critical race theorists, and this sort of goes back to what we were saying uh, a moment ago, the critical race theorists, many of whom were law professors themselves, right? Derek Bell at Harvard, and then eventually moved on. Uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, who is still alive today. Uh, Angela Harris, um, sort of, they looked at critical legal theory, and they said, well, they've almost got it right, right? There are power structures, but it's based on race, Everything in public and private life must be viewed through this lens of race Mm -hmm. and these power battles that we're engaged in, they are between people of different races. And, uh, you know, Derek Bell, the subtitle of his book, Faces at the Bottom of the Well, says that racism is effectively is permanent, right? The permanence of racism. It's a defining feature Mm -hmm. of the United States. Yeah, it's uh, funny how the... um, uh, 
uh, back to the sixteen nineteen project, uh, that was sort of the same thing. Everything is, uh, you know, race is the key uh, thing. And it's funny how, <laughs> uh, you know, the really the first uh, major pushback on that came not from like the right. Uh, I mean, or at least it didn't really make the news. But what made the news was the the interviews that the the Trotskyists at the World Socialist website did with all those uh, historians like James Oakes and Gordon Wood and all that and <laughs> and the Trotskyites are you know Trotskyites are still you know sitting there screaming like no no it's not race it's class it's class 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 you know um, but it's funny that's oh go ahead that's sorry. right yeah that's right that's that's one of the many ironies right? yeah yeah. Of, of um, yeah, but it, I, you know, hat tip to the Trotskyites, man. They did a lot of, uh, uh, they got the the snowball moving on the on the whole uh, sixteen nineteen project, but uh, or the critiques of it at least. But it's funny, or I don't know if it's funny, but it's just amazing, like how many. Uh, it seems like all like the worst ideas, like all come out of Germany, <laughs> like or like Germany since like you know post like French Revolution, whether it's like Hegelianism or like Marxism or uh, you know, national socialism or, or just like Bauhaus architecture, like that modernist, gross, like just architecture, architectural style, you know, critical theory. I mean, just, I don't know what it is with Germany in that, like, in that period, like post French Revolution to like World War II, but uh, nothing. It seems like everything that, everything that escaped the lab over there just ended up, you know, not great. <laughs> well, I think, you know, <laughs> Protestants would, would say that after perhaps after the 16th century, right, I think they would they would say that, that Luther's work was, uh, you know, a, a key defining feature of, uh, of yeah. the centuries that came after. And I, I think there's something to be said about um, this sense of, of German identity, actually, uh, mm-hmm. because there, there's there have been actually quite a bit written about. Um, the uh, what it was like to be a Jew in Germany in the 19th century uh, and how they were very successful and that um, th- there was a, a, a kind of search for what it meant to be German because, mm-hmm. you know, they were Prussia before there was, you know, competing tribes. There's kind of a lot going on there. And yep. then, especially after the end of the First World War, I think there was a very serious um you know, pursuit to figure out, you know, what does it mean to, to be German and, and what does our nation represent? And uh, while I am not a historical you know, expert <laughs> on that topic, I, I think that, you know, even a cursory reading, I think, of of that explains a lot of what you were describing there, right? I think that there's kind of been a pursuit in, or was anyway, in Germany about uh, what the what the German consciousness, you know, yeah. really was. I don't know. I just, uh, I just think, like, if, you know, any new... Any new ideas uh, come out of Germany uh, in the future, I think we should, you know, uh, give it the hairy eyeball. But uh, anyway, uh, enough, uh, enough uh, mean talking to Germans. Uh, so <laughs> uh, you you bring up the, the concept of uh, uh, habitus, uh, cultural habitus. Uh, what is cultural habitus and uh, why is it uh, why is why is that important for society, for culture? So it's really an idea that trace. I mean, some people trace it as far back as Aristotle. Uh, mm-hmm. I think even in the last century, um, there have been sociologists and, and psychologists and sort of historiography or historiographers who have written about habitus. And it's this it's generally a sense of sort of like a rule of thumb. Right. It's sort of a general understanding in a culture about what is right, what is wrong, 
what is appropriate, what is not appropriate. And it's these shared ideas that tend to bind a culture together, or at least help to bind a culture together. Uh, they're shared ideas about the way that people should act when they are together, the way that uh, what constitutes what we would call civil discussion or civil order or even civic participation mm -hmm. in public life. What's fascinating is that um, so Robin D'Angelo in her book, White Fragility, actually uses the idea of habitus and she accuses America of having this habitus of white privilege. And she says that America is defined by white privilege and that America uh, is um, guilty of a culture that is constantly oppressive because of the way that white people act, right? And white people have to engage in a constant set of apologies for everything that happens around them. Mm. And I, I uh, in reading more about this idea of habitus, others, uh, including James Davison Hunter, uh, who I, I believe has attributed this, this topic of uh, the culture war, of that term culture war back in the early 1990s, uh, he defined habitus in in the way that I was describing before, that these are actually shared ideas that help to unite a culture. And so I, I argue in, in Splinter that, you know, it's a, a, a terrible misrepresentation of the United States to say that we, our habitus is, is white oppression or white privilege. I mean, I, I argue that, um, you know, we are actually part of a self-correcting representative system uh, that in, is unique in having a nation founded uh, by people who believed that we could, man could rule himself or rule each other uh, through a representative system. And of course, it took too long. Of course, it was inconsistent with our founding ideals for slavery and, and for discrimination to be a part of it. But it is still unique to have this democratic experiment where we looked at this tragic moral blight uh, that was a part of our culture and then rid ourselves of it. Mm -hmm. through the law, through a cultural movement in the Civil Rights Act. Again, it, 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 it is not a justification in any way um, of slavery or of the idea that uh, the Jim Crow era was something that shouldn't have ever occurred, right? Um, it's rather, I think, a very confessional, I think, look at our uh, past and said that, yes, these were ideas that violated uh, the notion that we should be equal under the law equality under the law mm. right and uh and i i actually think that um uh we it when we say that america was or, or when those you know say that uh, our founding documents were false when they were written as the 1619 project does or when they say that uh, our nation was defined by white supremacy you're missing right that benjamin franklin and the quakers uh even before 1800 historians say that the, they were the very first political abolitionist movement, perhaps anywhere in the world. Yeah, right. That's true. Um, I mean, England may have abolished slavery before the United States. France did so, but then sort of went back to it and then, you know, got rid of it. Under I mean, France is a little more complicated. But, yeah. you know, this this concept here that um, we had political institutions that were vying for um, uh the preservation of the of the human spirit and this idea of, of equality under God and under the law um, as a part of our past that's that is a uniquely that's a unique thing that we should celebrate. Yeah, it, it seems um, I don't know really how to explain this, but it seems this uh, this racial or this narrative to say that uh, it's a country founded on white supremacy, 
uh, you know, race is everything, blah, blah, blah. It's sort of, in a way, and <clears throat> I don't mean this in a way, <clears throat> in a disrespectful way or a way to denigrate um, the black experience in America or uh, the um, uh, the achievements and and uh, um, and the uh, uh, sorry, what's the word I'm looking for? The um, the achievement, I mean, certainly uh, uh, but, but suffering and, and yeah, yeah, that but happened. Uh, right? But but my, uh, what I was trying to say is. Um, it's it's almost like it's a it's very there's something very narcissistic about this whole um uh this whole movement um this you know critical race theory movement this uh, or the 1619 project and where it's to, it's to put um place uh sort of black people in the center of a narrative that they're not really uh the center of i mean but, but that's because it's the, of their position as, you know, slaves sort of on the margins of society. Um, and it's not, like I said, it, it's not to denigrate uh, the uh, all the, uh, the wonderful things black people have done for America. But um, like I said, it's just there's something very narcissistic about uh, the whole uh, critical race theory uh, thing. Just It's just a, I don't know, it's just a. Um, <laughs> try not to say this in well, but it's, it's, you know what I mean. It's based on a power struggle. I mean, yeah. that is why that is why when you try to scrape away what's really going on with critical race theory, it's because it's not really about um, uh, allowing for the success of individuals from minority ethnicities. That's not really what's behind this. Yeah. Right. It it is actually still about Marxism. In mm. two thousand two. A uh, one of the original critical race theorists, a professor in California named Angela Harris, said that Marx's dazzling analysis of capitalism is still riveting to contemporary theorists. I summarized her quote <laughs> there, but those are the words that she uses. Right? It is still ultimately about power struggles. It is still ultimately saying that um, this is a a matter of um, using force, right, mm-hmm. to achieve certain ends. And I think that uh, I mean, look, there's an, an essay in a book called uh, Critical Race Theory, the key writings that formed a movement by a fellow named Gary Peller. And um, this like, remember the title, the key writings that form the movement. His essay says that there should be a black nation within the nation of the United States that is essentially completely separate from white individuals. Right. They're not looking for uh, co- cooperation or civic engagement, Mm -hmm. right? They're looking for a way to set up a um, zero-sum game, right, Right. Uh, with with this entire movement. And that is why it is so dangerous that we have these ideas of uh, mandatory affinity groups in public schools or uh, lessons about white fragility being taught in K-12 classrooms. Mm. Or there was a case in Nevada where a charter school student was required to affirm his white oppression and privilege in a project for class or he wouldn't uh, graduate and finish the class. And that became the subject of a lawsuit um, against this application of critical race theory in schools. And that's just one of of many. Right. So we're not just you know, we're not just saying, um, well, no, we shouldn't talk about slavery or no, we shouldn't teach it in schools. That's nonsense. Of course we should. What we're saying is that if you tell people that um, they have uh, negative characteristics based on the color of their skin, 
that's discriminatory. That violates federal law. The other thing is, too, it seems sort of like self-defeating. If you keep like uh, say if you keep like beating it into the heads of white people that they're white or like or, or to think of themselves first and foremost as white right, or as part of this like white group <laughs> then if you keep telling them that they're white and because of it they carry all this privilege and uh blah 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 all that stuff they're going to start to think of themselves first and foremost as white and then i i, I don't see how it's helpful to uh, <laughs> sort of like racialize uh or um you know, just like sort of beat that into people's heads. That, that, that seems very self-defeating because if if white people actually start uh, thinking of themselves as a group as white, uh, then and then our ident- uh, then our politics is going to get even more corroded. Um, you know, it's just another identity group that's acting as an identity group, and um, I just don't I just don't think it's very helpful. Well, I don't think it advances civil rights. No, for sure. And and one of the things that I talk about in my book is that there's a lot of talk today about these diversity trainings happening at K-12 schools and higher education, even in the workplace. And there's actually been a tremendous amount of research that has been done. I mean, we're talking hundreds of studies that have looked at the effects of these so-called diversity or equity training. Anti-bias training. uh, Yeah, yeah, anti-bias training. Um, and and it is it is shocking, right? Or it should be shocking to those who advocate for these trainings that they are highly ineffective. The results show that uh, people um, shortly after they finish the training and post surveys that they have um, either uh, not changed their opinions or not changed their minds, or that in some cases even the research has found that they are resentful of what they were just told. Mm-hmm. Um, but it largely does not change people's opinions. And now this is important here because uh, we have the federal government under the Biden administration pushing for these diversity trainings. We have um, I mean, it's an eight billion dollar a year industry, uh, according to researchers. I mean, this is there's big money going into this oh, idea sure. uh, that individuals have to be trained somehow to not be biased. And uh, the research finds that these are highly ineffective. And and look, even those who you know, center, left, whatever you want to call them. Um, I've seen articles in, uh, you know, mainstream media, Washington Post, uh, Education Week, uh, and some of the best um, sort of uh, meta research or, or research summaries of this came out of the Harvard Business Review. I mean, they, I think those on the left even recognize that these trainings are not, um, not successful. And so uh, when they're being pushed on people, um, uh, they they uh, are not, you know, the lawmakers are not recognizing that the research does not find that these are effective programs. Yeah. All right. Well, um, <clears throat> let's get back to uh, uh, CRT for a minute. And, uh, you know, we hear <laughs> uh, we hear claims from, you know, Randy Weingarten, who's the, you know, the head of the American Federation for Teachers and, uh, you know, that they're CRT isn't being taught in schools, and you know, and that and that is parroted by all these, uh, all this different media that carries water for the unions. But uh, uh, Randy Weingarten's claim that you know critical race theory is not being taught in K through K through 12 schools—that's uh, that's total bullshit, correct? 
<laughs> so that's uh, that's one of she's she's only one of many I think who have made this claim in mm-hmm. recent years, and um, it is so easy to disprove. I think that's another reason I wanted to write Splintered was that someone had to put this to paper. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and tell, I, so and yeah, tell us about uh, some of the uh, the the content, the critical content found in yeah K through twelve schools today. Sure, and yeah. I'm by no means the only one that has that has done this. <laughs> I mean, I, I, there are are plenty of uh, uh, well, I wouldn't say plenty. There are others who have done it. If, if it was plenty, I think more people would realize that, you know, critical race theory is being applied in schools. But um, but that's, you know, in my book, I you know talk about how in the Hayward Unified School District, just across the bay from San Francisco, they released a memo to their school community saying that the very words critical race theory would remain in school content as part of California's assigned ethnic studies program. Uh, the Detroit superintendent, just in last November, I believe, uh, was in a video, it's on YouTube, saying that the very words, critical race theory, is most certainly a part of the school curriculum in Detroit. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Loudoun County, Virginia, the school system hired a teacher training company that used the words critical race theory in their presentation to train teachers about how to teach. Uh, in Portland, the Portland public school system, and it's, it is district videos online that is a critical race theory working group of teachers who post their material online in and here I'll, i won't go on i could go on and on last one I'll, I'll leave with you with you here just so it's not on the you know the left coast or you know on the on the east coast or whatever um but in iowa city iowa they that school district has an entire page on white fragility and it lists the work of Ibram X. Kendi and all these different lessons. Uh, it's very common these days to find the assignments from a group known as uh, Learning for Justice, which is an arm of the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, that is uh, completely steeped in, in critical race theory, ideas of uh, America as a systemically racist uh, and oppressive nation, of white uh, oppression and all of, you know, all of these ideas that are core components of critical race theory. Um, so I mean, it is it is clear. I mean, it's it's clearly uh, a part of K twelve instruction today. Mm. And uh, <clears throat> it isn't just a uh, we're talking about this isn't just a public school problem, is it? I mean, how pervasive is uh, CRT in private schools, or uh, or in particular, uh, is it a problem in in parochial schools and Catholic schools, or just sort of uh, uh, non religious? Um, private schools how how pervasive is, is crt in private schools it, it is sadly it is sadly a problem uh barry weiss the former writer at the wall street journal and new york times who now has a, a terrific podcast and has in, been very outspoken on this issue um she wrote a, a piece for the city journal at the manhattan institute uh, last year or the year before talking about how critical race theory had shown up in private schools especially elite private schools mm-hmm. and some of the most expensive schools in the US. Yep. And so in my book, I kind of build off of that and actually found other examples of other elite private schools that have clearly um, uh, incorporated material that is based on the ideas of critical race theory in their school activities and in their in their curriculum. Um, and um, uh, it is something now that uh, I think that because it's so prevalent in colleges of education, that it cannot but help find its way into K-12 classrooms. And by the same token, because it has been in higher ed and places like Harvard and Yale and the Ivy Leagues for so long, I think that the prep schools that are 
you know, sending their students mm-hmm. off to those schools are, are simply following suit, right? Yeah. And um, uh, if it is in the culture of these leading institutions, why then it's in the culture of the prep schools that, that you know, send students off to it, to those schools. Yeah, I, I think it was last year I got this email out of the blue from this doctor from uh, somewhere in Ohio, and he was like, help me, <laughs> my daughter's uh, high school has been overtaken by communists. <laughs> I, was like, well, mm-hmm. I was like, well, what do you mean? And uh, he was like, well, it's infested now with all this uh, you know, race theory crap and the, you know, the critical stuff, blah, 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 blah. What do I do? And uh, or it was, his, it was his granddaughter, I think it was. So it's so I looked it up, and it was some it was some prep school, um, I think by Columbus. And I, I I looked at the tuition, and the tuition was like, you know, like thirty thirty grand a year, or something like that. And, mm-hmm. he was, and he was like, mm-hmm. "What can we do?" And I was like, "Well, I mean, it's a private school, so I can pretty much do whatever they want. I mean, I guess yeah. if I mean if enough parents, you know, uh, are." Uh, you know, if you if if you can get, find enough parents who don't like it, you can maybe go to the board of directors of the school, and you know try to institute a change that way. Or if then and if they don't listen to you, I, I was like, well, you can always find another school for your granddaughter, but you know that's never going to happen because you know, the, uh, part you know half the reason you know people send their kids to these you know private schools that charge that much is because the <laughs> it's not even so much the education they're getting is that is they get the the name the human capital yeah the, well, yeah yeah the human capital yeah. and just the name you know to to put on the, the college transcripts and that sort of thing so um well and i think that for those who um, are sending their students <clears throat> excuse me to schools like that um i think that if you raise to the attention of the school leaders that this is not um this material is neither historically accurate nor balanced or in the case of the 1619 project uh factual Mm -hmm. Uh, I think if they are true to the idea that they are interested in intellectual rigor and uh, and strong academics, uh, I I just I don't think it's necessarily automatic that teachers are buying into this. I actually think it's being driven by special interest groups. I think that powerful interest groups like the teachers unions, uh, like those on the radical side of of the of the left Mm -hmm. are pushing this. And I think that uh, reasonable people, as surveys demonstrate, Reasonable people see that uh, critical race theory does not fit with um, our sense of, of shared identity, of of civic engagement and uh, equality under the law. Yeah, I agree with you uh, to an extent, but I, I feel like at schools like this, just more and more you see uh, white people with uh, with the college education, especially uh, with you know, postgraduate education. Uh, tend to pull increasingly more to the left these days. And um, I, I think the, the, the parents of the children uh, attending a lot of these, you know, the, the fancier um, uh, private schools, the Tonier private schools, the posh private schools, uh, to use a British elocution, um, they seem to be the ones, sort of the, <laughs> the wealthy white people who sort of like really eat this stuff up. And, uh, you know, really take it to uh, um, take it to heart, whether I don't know whether it's just because they think they have to, because they think it's, you know, the sort of the uh, that's just the the right, 
you know, the, the front they have to put up or whether they, they just think it's sort of like that's to, um, uh, or well, whether they believe it or not. A, you know, yeah. Racial guilt is a powerful motivator, mm-hmm. right? No one wants to be called racist, right? Yeah. And so this, fa- this false idea that uh, if you are not anti-racist, then you are racist. I think it drives people to think, well, I don't want to be racist. So it must be this anti-racist racism idea but once you know they 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 don't look at the package right Mm -hmm. they they don't read the details which is that you know anti-racism according to kendi believes that racism and capitalism are conjoined twins uh they believe you know he he argues that discrimination is necessary today and will be necessary in the future right it's they they sort of they didn't read the it's not even fine print i mean i think they didn't read the (laughs) subtitle right just read the subtitle and i think you'll see that uh this is not what it is it is couched at sure. by the mainstream media. Sure. All right. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, since it's been in the news uh, the last couple of month, uh, couple of months, uh, social and emotional learning uh, (SEL). What is uh, social and emotional learning, and um, does it tie into critical race theory? And uh, if so, how does it tie in? So SEL has it has been around for many years. Yeah. I mean, at least twenty years, uh, and it has been uh, taught. And I, I think the best way to describe it is it's sort of a non-religious way to teach virtues and values uh, to to young people. I think that it's uh, there. There was an effort to teach students about ideas related to character and sort of self-evaluation. Um, that that SEL at one point was largely trying to do now it's hard to to describe sel as one thing or as all sel you know teachers mm-hmm. are, are originally anyway tried to right. do all the same thing today though uh like you know anything that happens in k-12 ed in the u.s it, it gets organized by interest groups it does become pretty cookie cutter and it is you know now um united around many of the same ideas i don't believe that SEL came out of critical race theory. I don't think it was birthed out of critical race theory. I think it was there independently of it. Mm-hmm. I do believe that today, like any subject, that it has been corrupted by critical race theory. Now, um, I, I'll say a word specifically about how it shows up in SEL, but I mean, look, I've seen critical race theory in math. I've seen it in ethnic studies. I've seen it in social studies. I've seen it in history, in English literature. I mean, I you can find elements of critical race theory in subjects across the board. I think SEL is just one of many that has kind of fallen under the, the spell, if you want to say that. Um, SEL yeah. is particularly vulnerable to it because there aren't a lot of hard and fast, I think, um, skills that um, that SEL was dealing with, right? It's one thing to teach addition, subtraction, multiplication, mm-hmm. Or um, you know how to write a clear sentence and use prepositions and things like that. It's something else to sort of have these kind of you know um, very uh, humanities-related conversations about emotions and and things like that and and personal accountability and things. Mm-hmm. So I think when you add critical race theory's emphasis on guilt to SEL, the two are kind of a perfect fit, right? Yeah. And SEL is now being used as a way to say. If you are a white and white individual, if you are white as a child, you are inherently oppressive. You shouldn't be allowed to have certain conversations. You shouldn't be allowed to say certain things because you are white. You can't comment 
on certain experiences because you are white. Mm -hmm. And this, by the way, traces directly back to essays by Richard Delgado, for example, a law professor down in Alabama, who was one of the original critical race theorists. I mean, he made this case. I mean, he said in an essay once that white individuals can't comment on the black experience. Right. Um, yeah. So they are it, it is using guilt as sort of a fuel to uh, to drive now this new message that um, uh, equity, the the equal outcomes is something that should be engineered by public policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's switch gears a little bit. And you brought this up uh, in passing uh, a few minutes ago, but uh, I want to talk about uh, higher education and uh, CRT there. How, how pervasive is critical race theory in the curricula at education colleges uh, across the country? So the school, the, the colleges that, uh, you know, that educate the, the teachers or most of the teachers that, you know, end up in our uh, school system. Yeah, very common, very common. There's been surveys of the curriculum at some of the largest colleges of education that looked at the books that are commonly used. Paulo Freire's book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which is, uh, it predated critical race theory, but it is a book that critical race theorists built many of their ideas on. Um, Pedagogy of the Oppressed is uh, written by a Brazilian Marxist who was saying that the uh, underclass in Brazil needed to revolt against their uh, ruling government at the time. And it's essentially a guidebook for revolutionaries. That's what pedagogy of the oppressed is. He happens to use the words teacher and student to refer to those who should be teaching the underclass how to revolt. And so uh, it found its way into uh, 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 colleges of ed as a manual for how we should be looking at teaching, which is mm. a, a remarkable thing in, its, in and of itself. So, so pedagogy of the oppressed is very common. Um, as well as um, the work by Gloria Ladson Billings, who is a critical race theorist, professor emeritus at Wisconsin. Uh, her work is commonly used. So, so colleges of ed, um, you know, we can cite chapter and verse some of the most commonly used uh, materials that are either based on critical race theory or helped inspire CRT uh, in those places. But I mean, look, you can look across the departments uh, in in law. Right, there are. I mean, classes with the words critical race theory in the title mm-hmm. uh, at places like ASU, Arizona State University. Um, there's even a music class at ASU that uh, is taught by a critical race theorist who says that she wants to teach music through a critical race theory lens. I mean, it's, you know, it's something that is being applied a- across the, uh, the academic landscape. Yeah, there was, I just saw on Amazon the other day, uh, this uh, academic book on like the, it was called like the political world of Bob Dylan. And I was like, Oh, that seems interesting. And then I started, uh, but it was like 85 bucks, you know, it was like an academic <laughs> textbook. And I, I was like, well, let me take a look. Uh, let me read like the intro or stuff at first before I decide I want to like read it. And then, uh, I noticed it was, um, it would have to be, it was like part of like a set on like, uh, uh critical theory and like music or something like that. And I was just like, Oh Christ, never mind. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, but you saved me 85 bucks by, you know, putting that in there. So thank you. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, keeping in with, uh, with, uh, uh, higher education and just sort of the, uh, effects of, uh, 
CRT. How does uh, how does that how does CRT um, how does the impact has had on like sort of the, the free speech problem we've been seeing on college campuses and uh, and uh, also the idea of uh, what what is action civics and how does action civics uh, explain the rise of uh, this uh, aggressive uh, student activism we've seen in the last few de- years with uh, you know shouting down speakers and uh, <laughs> lighting stuff on fire and uh, vandalism and all that sort of stuff. How, how, uh, talk a little bit about those two things if you could for a minute. Well, sure. In one of the chapters in my book, I write about how uh, Americans recognize that there was a free it was and is a free speech crisis on college campuses today i mean people have seen the news reports about uh violent activity at berkeley um just a couple of years ago as well as really the shoutdowns that are happening on campuses all Mm. over the u.s and um it is a free speech crisis but there's something more here when you watch the videos when you read the transcripts of what the protesters or rioters are saying when they conduct these uprisings they're using the words straight from the critical yeah, race theory yeah. lexicon. They're using words like decolonization, like uh, power, like um, violence of words, like microaggression, uh, and on and on. And so, you know, it is a, a – I make the case in my book that what is – what these students are doing is they are living out what they have been taught – in the atmosphere that critical race theory created on campus, right? They are saturated in it um, Mm -hmm. by the academics that are teaching it. And so this is the natural consequence, right? Is that students look at everything in terms of power structure. And so there has to be a constant uh, battle for superiority. And so that is, that's what they're after. And that's what's happening uh, on campus and uh, what's manifested itself with, with action civics. I think that, there was a move about uh, under the Obama administration in particular um, to look at the way civics was taught in the U.S. and say, you know, there is a, a civics crisis because students are not performing well enough on measures of, of, of civic learning. Uh, we have evidence that uh, adults, when they are asked basic questions about American history or civic participation, can't answer, you know, basic questions. And so the push uh, under the Obama administration was to move to something more than just facts and to go straight to action. Let's just train students to either be protesters or lobbyists or um, become politically active. Mm -hmm. And the danger here is that you're sending students off to be activists on issues when they don't have all the facts, when they haven't been taught all of the details on some rather complex issues regarding either the environment or uh, what some people call gentrification or, you know, just changes in the economy. It's not Uh, even, they don't don't have all the facts. They really don't have any. I mean, if you look at the, the, the (laughs) civic scores and the, the, you know, the history scores on the, uh, on the nation's report card, I mean, it's awful. It's like, you know, 10, 10% of students uh, test to, you know, to grade level, test to proficiency. Uh, and those subjects, I mean, you know, 90, you know, 90% of the kids that graduate high school know uh, nothing really about any uh, sort of, uh, uh, of how our government functions, uh, you know, or, or the history of this country or, or the world, you know, for that matter. You know, it's terrible. Yeah. 
Well, and the, the Annenberg Policy Center at uh, University of Pennsylvania has done surveys for many years asking Americans, you know, how much they know about our, you know, three branches of government and the, the rights of the First Amendment and things like that. And the results from those surveys are, are also very discouraging. So, yeah, it's you know, no, it, it's not like things get better when kids meet <laughs> right, 12, right. right? I mean, adults today still don't know. Yeah. Um, so... Let me switch gears again because we're getting close to an hour, so I want to start to wrap it up. But uh, what are the – you bring this up in the book. What are the three main uh, ideas uh, that discussions of America's past, our, uh, our national ethos and uh, race relations in this country what should focus on? What are the – what are the cultural assumptions Americans need to share and uh, and teach? Uh, again, back to the civics things, which we're not doing. Uh, what are the cultural assumptions we need to share and teach in order to uh, restore a sense of um, identity, I guess, to uh, or national identity to the United States or to to the American creed? Yes, and and I wrote these because uh, I I want to make it very clear that. Um, nothing in my book says that we shouldn't talk about Mm -hmm. slavery or the Jim Crow era or the failures in reconstruction after the civil war, right? This is, this is not an effort to say we should limit somehow students' education about, uh, what the, the role that race played in America's past. That's not it at all. Um, so the, the three big ideas. So first, too many Americans failed to live up to their, uh, our national creed in the past this doesn't represent a failing of those creeds, right, of equality under the law, um, uh, equality of rights. But it's a failure by individuals and communities to fulfill it, right, to live up to it. Um, our commitment to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, um, these beliefs are the ideas that we need to apply today because they help us to overcome the divisive ideas in critical race theory. Second, black American successes in the past in building a culture uh, for themselves, and even participating in the economy at large, even under slavery, even under Jim Crow, those are things we should celebrate. Those are accomplishments that teach the attitudes and behaviors of persistence, of hard work, of responsibility that make success possible. This is a part of the American experience, right? Mm-hmm. We should we should celebrate the success that they had and condemn, of course, the obstacles that they had to overcome in order to do so. But that kind of uh, success and perseverance that makes up, or I hope, uh, it makes up the, uh, part of the American, uh, identity. And then third, our society is, will, is going to be defined by our cultural dispositions on how we treat those with whom we disagree. I think one of the most time tested ideas is that we should love, uh, our enemies, or if not, at least respect those with whom we disagree and allow for a legal structure that allows for individuals to pursue their definition of human flourishing as long as it doesn't interfere with someone else's you know, ability to do the same. And there's always going to be a tension in American law over that and what that looks like. But, uh, but this idea that um, – and, and Martin Luther King Jr. said this very well, and it wasn't in his uh, – you know, I have a dream speech. It was in his sermons – um, he, where he wrote about how, um, uh, we should love our neighbor. He said that, um, you know, 
this command to love one's, and I'm going to quote him real very quickly here, the command to love one's enemy is an absolute necessity for our survival. It is the key solution of the problems of our world, right? Mm -hmm. He's talking about how if we're going to hold together as a community, there has got to be this shared sense of respect. Okay. Uh, well, uh, so what can what can parents and students do about uh, critical race theory if it if it uh, is in their schools or has the potential of coming to their schools and and also um, are there any policy solutions here we should be looking at and uh, if so uh, what things shouldn't these policy solutions include? So I'll take the second first because sure. I think it will it will blend nicely into your your first question. So gotcha. when it comes to policy, I think that these parent bills of rights that we've heard a lot about over the past year are very mm -hmm. important, right? They can contain the ideas that parents are their their child's primary caregiver, that schools should put their academic content online so that parents and voters and policymakers can see what students are being taught before it winds up in a child's backpack and they bring it home for homework. Um, schools should get express permission from parents before any health uh, activity is, uh, is engaged in with the child, whether that's um, you know, cough syrup or counseling about a child's gender, right? All of that, <laughs> there should be express permission from parents before any of that happens. And then finally, no individual should be compelled or forced to believe any idea that violates the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And that's why these projects around mandatory affinity groups, around teaching white privilege, about saying that math is really uh, should be a battle for white supremacy, I mean, all these things that the critical race theory curricula talk about, that's why those things, you know, pointing out those examples is so important. So those policies, they can be done all at once, kind of in a big parent bill of rights, or they can be done in separate provisions as they were in Florida uh, in just the past year. Texas um, is going to be looking at this in, in next year. Uh, the governor has already announced that it's important to him. Uh, so we're going to be seeing this really around the country. What can parents do then if, if these are what the policy solutions that, that lawmakers are considering? I think that one is um, knowing that they're not alone. And when they want to go to a school board meeting and say that they disagree with the idea that their child is oppressive because of the color of their skin, there are going to be others in their community who agree with them. And I think speaking up and being uh, allowed to speak up in a school board meeting is uh, nothing short of essential. Uh, I think that uh, parents should also start with the people closest to them and their child. If there is something that they see in a school that they disagree with, go to your child's teacher. It is your right to be a active participant in your child's learning experience. And, um, you know, from the teacher to the principal and superintendent to uh, the school board, um, you know, this is these are the cultural institutions that we have put in place so that communities can take part in this civic institution that is our public school system. Uh, and, you know, if it if it becomes something where. Uh, the schools, uh, you know, refuse to listen and, and want to continue to engage in, in this really damaging uh, activities. That's why school choice is so important. Mm -hmm. That's why parents should be allowed to choose how and where their children learn. Yeah, I was going to say one solution would be to make sure you vote for uh, 
vote for candidates who are proponents of, of school choice. You know, that's a, we can get more of them in the legislature. We can hopefully get uh, more choice bills passed and, uh, you know, throughout the states. So, um, but uh, I guess final question, something, again, I pretty much ask everybody who comes on here. Um, what's the, you maybe might have answered it in your last, uh, one of the last couple of questions I asked you, but I'll, I'll ask it just in case. But uh, what would you like the audience to get out of uh, reading this book? What's the, what's the one thing you'd want them to take away from it? I think that it is a, there is an American, a uh, sense of American identity that we can share and that the American dream belongs to all of us and that it is uh, something that is available uh, to us and that if we look at the world or look at our country only through any lens of whether it's power, whether it's economic class, whether it's race, you are missing, I think, this important um, result of the American experiment that it is offering the world, right? Uh, this don't don't miss what America has done that is distinctly uh, distinctly American, and that is have a a a um, group of people who believe that man could govern himself and created institutions that were inherently self-correcting. Uh, when there is ideas and policies and laws that interfere with our founding founding uh, beliefs, that we can uh, and have done away with them. And it's our responsibility to continue that now and for the next generation and to teach these things to the next generation. All right. Well, very well said. Well, um, you got anything else uh, you want to plug while we're here? Any uh, social media or any other appearances or anything going on at Heritage uh, that people out there should know about? Well, thank you. I mean, so my book is for sale on Amazon. I'm on Twitter at at JM underscore butcher. Um, uh, Heritage will be hosting an event uh, just tomorrow, in fact, that will be available online. Um, and more information about this event, ha it, which has to do with education and uh, particularly the issue of civil rights. And uh, more information is available at heritage.org. All right. That'll be uh, – will the uh, video of that event uh, be up uh, after the event? The I think are... it will be okay. I think it will be live streamed, and then the video will be available afterward. Oh, cool. All right. Great. Okay. Well, again, uh, the book is Splintered: Critical Race Theory and the Progressive War on Truth. Uh, fascinating book. Um, definitely worth the read for. I mean, especially if you're uh, if you have um, you know kids of school age and are uh, just trying to figure out what is going on with all this uh, CRT stuff. What exactly CRT is. Uh, where it came from, you know, what, what the goals of that movement are, um, you know, just a, a chock full of information, uh, book highly recommended to everybody out there. Of course, uh, Jonathan always does uh, great work, but, uh, yeah, but, uh, highly, highly recommend this book. So, uh, Jonathan, uh, thank you very much for, uh, one, for writing the book and two, for, uh, for coming on the podcast and, uh, having a discussion with me about it. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. And thank you for having me. Oh, no problem. And again, if you like this podcast, please leave us a five-star review and share with your friends. And if you have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, you can reach out to me at uh, tbenson at heartland.org. That's uh, T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And we also uh, we do have our Twitter account for the uh, for the podcast. You can reach out to us there as well. You know, uh, give us a follow. 
send us a DM if you have any questions or comments or whatnot. Uh, what, what is our? Uh, <laughs> I always forget that too. Our uh, Twitter handle for the podcast is at uh, illbook, so at i l l book. So again, check us out there. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. So uh, thank you very much for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Hi to, hi to you both. Right, bye-bye. Mm-hmm.